Well, good morning. It is uh, good to to see you all. I just wanted to give a, a brief uh, update on uh, the uh, the building decision that uh, Bruce mentioned earlier, kind of coming off of our uh, meeting uh, last week. We we do want to tentatively begin to move forward uh, on uh, beginning to meet uh, at that location at the, the Church of God Seventh Day, starting on uh, yeah the 18th and moving day would be the 11th. Uh, one of the things that we're still considering and thinking about is just the the parking situation. Uh, and so one of the, I needed to make a note to myself of, I just wanted to, I guess by a show of hands, how many of vehicles, uh, if you were a driver here this morning, can you, uh, can you raise your hand? So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three. Okay, that's this side. You guys put your hands down. Oh, sorry. Like I gotta count faster. Twenty-four, twenty-five, twenty-six, twenty-seven, twenty. All right, 42. So remember that. Uh, so that, those are just one of the things that we, we need to consider. I guess parking's kind of important when it comes to large gatherings. But all right, that was the, the housekeeping issue. Now, if you have your, if your Bibles, uh, open up with me to, uh, to John chapter 1. Now we get to the good stuff. Uh, no more housekeeping. Now we get to, uh, to dive into God's Word uh, together. And as you're, as you're turning there to, to John chapter 1, uh, there is a, there's currently a very important uh, re- religious liberty court case uh, that pertains to uh, a World War I memorial in Bladensburg, Maryland. Now, the memorial in that town was built by its citizens, uh, and it was built in order to help them remember the devotion, the dedication, and the sacrifice uh, of the many men, the many Americans who uh, have died in uh, or died in World War One, what was at that point in time known as the Great War, and it's uh, pretty amazing to to believe and to realize that the Great War, World War One, ended over a hundred years ago. Uh, and so they built this memorial in the 1920s, uh, and this uh, this war memorial has been the cause of this court case. Uh, it recently passed through the Fourth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, the, the case has become known as American Legion versus uh, American Humanist Association. Uh, and after three years of uh, litigation and court battles, uh, a three-panel judge of that court determined that th- that memorial was unlawful. And you, you may say, well, why was, why was it determined that it was unlawful? Because it was in the, the shape of a cross. So as you drive through town, this war memorial has the shape of a giant cross. And and you've probably heard similar stories to that, kind of around our, our country of, of movements and, and, and uh, people pushing for uh, that kind of uh, memorial or something, a public cross to be removed. And it's really easy to to read those stories or hear about those stories and say, wow, our our society is becoming more and more hostile to Christ. Uh, they, uh, it's just getting worse and worse. Uh, and to the point where, as we see in this case, there's a desire to expunge any, any public Christian symbol out of existence. They don't want it to be on any public land, uh, any Christian symbol such as a cross. And, and it's easy to say, how are we, how are we going to, to get any worse? And, and I can't believe this, this culture is becoming increasingly hostile. And, 
what I would, what I would dare to say is that, uh, the culture has always been hostile to Christ. The world has always been against Jesus and against anybody who would follow him. What is becoming more and more apparent is that hostility. That it's no longer cloaked, it's no longer veiled, but people can speak openly about it and against Christ. And because we've, we've seen that and because we just naturally feel that, that it's, it's getting more and more difficult. Uh, it's becoming uh, more and more obvious that as Christians, we are those who swim upstream, that we are swimming against the current. So the question arises, how, how are we to live as Christians in an increasingly hostile world, uh, a world that is constantly showing its true colors about where their allegiance lies? Well, we live in a, in a world that has been hostile to Christ, and it's not a new thing. It's been that way for the last 20 centuries. Uh, how do I know that? Well, because uh, John, the apostle, in this very chapter, and in the verses that we're going to look at this morning, writes about the hostility of the world against Jesus. He writes about how the world responded to Jesus when he came into the world. And as we have spent the last several weeks looking at uh, the prologue to the Gospel of John, uh, verses 1 through 18, which kind of set the stage for the rest of the Gospel, uh, which introduces to all of the main ideas and the main themes. One of the main themes throughout John's Gospel is the open hostility towards Jesus by the world and also by Israel, as we will, as we, we will see in this passage. And in verses 1 through 5, we saw who Jesus was. John writes and he speaks of Jesus as the Word, uh, as the Logos, who was with God in the beginning, who is the creator and sustainer of all things, who is the source of life and light. In verses 6 through 8, we saw the ministry of John the Baptist, who came to be a witness about the light, that his ministry was to testify to who Jesus was and what he did, and at that point, what Jesus would do. And in those verses we saw Jesus announced, and in the verses that we're going to look at this morning, verses 9 through 13, we're going to see that Jesus was announced and then he was rejected by the world and by Israel, but then he was also received by some when he came into the world. Uh, read along with me, John chapter 1, verses 1 all the way through 18, just to get our, our bearings for where we will be this morning. But John writes, In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, 
who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And while we're only going to be looking at verses 9 to 13 this morning, I wanted to read that because verses 10 and Oh, I'm sorry, 12 and 13, which we're going to cover this morning. These are the, these are the heart of the prologue. In, in Hebrew literature, there's a way of emphasizing something. It's called a, a chiasm, named after the, the Greek letter, uh, chi, meaning an X. Uh, and how it works is there, basically the, the Hebrew author would, would drive to the middle and then backtrack, uh, his way along the path that he took getting there. And by doing that, what is naturally emphasized is his destination. Where is he getting to? Where is, where is John the Apostle driving to in this prologue? Well, it's verses 12 and 13. That everybody who looks to Jesus Christ in faith will receive salvation, will receive forgiveness, will be made children of God. That is, that is what John is driving at and what he wants us to get to. And then he works his way back afterwards. But what we need to know, and what John the Apostle wants us to know, is that the good news of salvation comes by believing in Jesus Christ. But John also wants us to know, to see, to understand the tragedy of the world's hostility towards our Savior, Jesus. Again, this is a common theme that we see in John's gospel, that there will be many who, who claim to follow Christ. And as we work our way through John's gospel, we'll see that there are some who believe and then who fall away. Jesus says some things they don't like, some things that are difficult to, to, to really submit to. See that in John chapter 6. And Jesus is going to ask his disciples, and Peter is going to say, Lord, where else are we supposed to go? You have the words of eternal life. What we see in John's gospel over and over again is that there's some who believe, but there are many, many who don't. Many who believe for a time and who fall away, who do not accept what Jesus says. But even though many will reject Christ, there are still some who will receive him as Savior. And why is that important for us to know here in the 21st century? Why do we need to know this 2,000 years after Christ walked the earth because it will help us to understand the world around us and it helps us to understand ourselves our own hearts and as we understand those two things the world and ourselves we will better understand the grace that god has extended to us through his son jesus christ and as we look this morning it's going to be two two big truths about life in this world and I've adjusted them slightly 
from the outline that's in front of you. Sometimes I change my mind. Uh, but the first truth is going to be that the, the tragedy of Jesus' rejection by the world and his people. And the second truth that we need to understand is that the blessing of Jesus' reception by those who believe. But first, let's look at this tragedy, because that is what John introduces to us first. And he's going to introduce the tragedy of Jesus' rejection by the world and his people in verses 9 through 11. In verses 9 and 10, we see how the world responded to Jesus. John begins verse 9. It says, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. And the point here is that Jesus was and is the true light. And that word for true is the idea of genuine, of real. And the idea not only of just the, the true and the genuine, but ultimately the, the perfect, the ultimate light is Jesus Christ. And the Greek word for that gives light, that verb there, is not just merely shining, it's not just merely emanating light, but it's the idea of functioning as a source of light. And that is what Jesus did, that is who he was. He was the true light. And then John says that the true light gives light to everyone. And in our equipping hour class, uh, we've been talking about how to study the Bible and we talk about making observations and then asking questions of our observations. So, so John has said that the true light has shined to everyone, but then we need to ask, well, what does that mean? In what way has the true light, in what way has Jesus shined to everyone? How does he give light to everyone? Well, there's, there's a couple different options. Some people would say that what Jesus does is he gives an internal illumination to all people. That suddenly Jesus is the one who makes all people good and, and better and able to do righteous and noble things. And they, they say, hey, this is an internal light that Jesus gives. But, but as, as we look at the rest of Scripture, that seems to be contrary to everything else that the Bible says. Right? The, the Bible doesn't say that we are naturally good or that Jesus to all people transforms every single person's heart. If that was the case, I think the world around us would look very different, would it not? If everybody was illuminated by the light of Christ, we would have an affection for him and a desire for him rather than to be contrary to him. So that, that wouldn't be the understanding here because that would contradict scripture. Other pastors and commentators would, would limit the scope of what Jesus uh, or what is being said here. They would say that Jesus doesn't give light to everybody without exception. He doesn't give light to every single person, but he gives light to everybody without distinction. That the light of salvation shines to everybody without discrimination. It's to Jew and to Gentile, men and women, the rich and the poor. Jesus shines light to everybody. Everybody is offered the light of Jesus. And that interpretation does fit well. But I also think there's another another option. So I was thinking and meditating upon this and looking at other scripture passages. I think there's also a sense that as we look at how John has used light already in this passage, what does light do? Even just in this room, what is light doing? It's showing us what's in the room. It is exposing us. And what we see in John's gospel is that when the light of Christ shines upon individuals, they are exposed. The truth about them is made known. 
If you turn just a page or two in your Bible to John chapter 3, verse 19, what we're going to see is that when the light shines, there are some who hate the light. It's kind of like everybody in the morning when your light first goes on, you're like, oh, it burns. But but they they don't like it because expo- it exposes them as sinners. It exposes them as those who are in rebellion against God. So John chapter 3, verse 19 through 21 says this, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. That's what we begin to see as Jesus shines in someone's life. As the truth about Christ is proclaimed, hearts are revealed. Whether you love darkness or whether you will respond to the light that is shining in Christ. Turn over with me to Luke chapter 2. This is also seen in Luke. So after the birth of Jesus, he's presented at the temple in verse 22. And there is a man at the temple in Luke chapter 2, a man named Simeon, whom God promised that he would not die before he saw the Messiah. And so as Jesus is there in the temple... We pick things up in verse 27. So then he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. So Simeon's there in the temple. Mary, Joseph, and Jesus come in. And he, Simeon, took him, Jesus, up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So Simeon says this little baby that he's holding in his arms is the light given to all peoples, sent to, to be to the Gentiles. But look, verse 33, And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to his to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. How would you like to be a mother and hear that? What's your baby boy going to do? It's going to cause a, a division within humanity. He's going to expose the hearts of all men. And that is what the light of Christ does. It exposes our hearts. How do we respond to what Jesus says? To what he illuminates in our life? Do we prefer the light that he shines or do we like darkness? Do we naturally gravitate back to our old manner of living? I think that is what is being spoken of here. That is the way the light shines to all men. Additionally, that next little statement, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. That is how 
That is an additional description. It doesn't need to be there, but it's there to give us more details about how the light shined. And the light shined, the light of Christ shined by coming into the world. What we see and what we read in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The incarnation, Jesus God the Son becoming a man, coming and dwelling among men, living among us. That is how the light shined in the darkness of this world. That is how the true light shined and continues to shine. It's made clear in the Greek that the light of Christ continues to shine, present participle, to all people. And again, as I as I said, in verses 9 and 10, John is highlighting the world's response to Jesus. So John continues, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. So there's a couple of different ways uh, that we are seeing just in this passage that John is making emphasis. We've already seen the chiasm, but then the basic way of emphasizing something is repetition. Right? He just says the same thing over and over again. And what word in that passage is repeated? The, the word world. It's spoken over and over again. And it's intended to heighten the gravity and the tragedy of what is being said here. See, John gives us three simple statements in verse 10. Each one is associated with the use of the word world. And the first two points emphasize the third point. Point number one, Jesus was in the world. Jesus was in the world. He was in the realm of human existence. He came to the earth and he walked among men. The second statement that he makes, and the world was made through him. Something that we've already seen in John chapter 1 verse 3. That all things that came into existence came into existence through Jesus. And John is reiterating that now. Say, hey, Jesus was here and he was the one who created everything. But then what's the tragedy of the third statement? That the world did not know Jesus. And here, when he says the world, he's speaking of humanity. All of humanity who is in rebellion against God. Who is in rebellion against their creator. And that is the tragedy. That the, the one who, who made the world and who was there among them, they still didn't know. They still didn't recognize. And what's amazing is that when John uses this term, the world, and when he's using it in a way that's speaking of people, he never includes believers in that. Believers aren't included when John speaks of the world in his gospel. Sometimes he speaks of the earth, sometimes he speaks of the whole created universe. But when he's speaking of people, he's not speaking about believers. He's speaking about those who are in rebellion against God. Listen to this, John fifteen nineteen. This is why John doesn't speak of believers as being in the world. He says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world... Therefore, the world hates you. See, Jesus has said every believer, he's called out of the world. He's, we are no longer of this world. He's taken us out. And so when John speaks of the world, it's apart from any 
believer. So again, when, when John famously says in chapter 3, verse 16, that God so loved the world, that the love of God is heightened because God's love is not being extended to those who, who like him, who are submitting to his uh, lordship. That's, a, that's what believers do. And yes, he loves us. But John 3.16 shows us, hey, the love of God is extended and shown to those who are in rebellion against God the Father. That God loved the world in rebellion against him. And this is the tragedy that John wants us to see. That even though Jesus was the true light, even though he's the source of light, even though he's there among them, even though he's the one who's given them life and breath and everything, they did not know him. They didn't recognize him. They didn't respond to him. They didn't arrive at a knowledge of who he is, even though he gave out that knowledge. Even though Jesus came saying, here I am, this is who I am, this is what I came to do, this is what you need to believe. The world did not listen. But this this is more than just an intellectual knowledge. This isn't just a, uh, the world didn't know, they didn't have the, the understanding. This is, this is pointing to a, a, a willful refusal. That's what this is, is pointing to. A willful refusal to accept or believe in Christ. One pastor has said, the basic sin in John's gospel is the failure to know and believe in Jesus. And that is the, the, the basic sin, the basic rebellion that mankind has committed against God, that they refuse to believe in the one he has sent. So verses 9 and 10, John speaks about the world rejecting Jesus, which is tragic, which is difficult. But then in verse 11, it becomes even more tragic because John shifts from speaking about the world to speaking about the nation of Israel. Verse 11, he says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And that little phrase, that he came to his own, the idea is that that Jesus came to his own property. He came to his own home. The nation of Israel. And John doesn't say that that they didn't know him. It says they didn't receive him. Now, if you're coming to your home, what would you expect? You would expect to be received. And the exact same phrase, this idea of coming to his own, is, is going to be used in John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27, as Jesus is hanging on the cross. And he speaks to John the Apostle, who's referred to in that verse as the 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 apostle whom Jesus loved. And Jesus says, take my mother, take care of her. And it says from that day forward, that apostle brought her to his own home. It's the exact same phrase. Jesus came to his own, to his people, and was not welcomed. He was not received. And this is this was the pattern with Israel that they repeatedly hardened their heart towards God that they repeatedly rejected uh his grace his mercy his loving kindness Isaiah 65 verses 2 and 3 say I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people 
who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks. And Israel had a history of rejecting God, of hardening their heart towards him. And that re- that rejection of God culminated in the rejection of his son. That was the the ultimate rejection by the nation of Israel. But here also, think about it this way. We're getting ready for Christmas. Christmas is coming. I think we're inside of 10 weeks. So you'll all be uh, looking at, at Matthew 1 and, and Luke 1 and 2 uh, in the coming days. Uh, and Luke 2 famously records the, the story of Jesus uh, coming to Bethlehem, right? Uh, his mother Mary and his father Joseph need to go to Bethlehem. Why? There's a census. Uh, so they need to go. Uh, and why are they going to Bethlehem? Because it's their hometown. That's where their family is. And they get to Bethlehem, and what happens? It says there's no room for them in the in the inn. But that word for inn is really just the word for house. And again, where are they coming? They're coming back to their hometown where they have family. And they come to presumably the home of their family. And guess what? There's no room for them in their own family's house. Think about that. How tragic is that? And how much would you have to kind of dislike one of your family members for them to travel all that way and then you turn them away? There was no room for them in the inn. There was no room for them in their own family's home. So what did they have to do? They went to the barn. They laid Jesus in a feeding trough. And you, you're familiar with that story, but but that little that little story is a picture of the bigger and greater rejection of Jesus. He was rejected by his family. He was rejected by his people, the nation of Israel, the ones who would know the most about him. Rejected him. They didn't want him. They didn't recognize that he was the true light. That he was their savior. And as we read these three verses, they're not, they're not intended to create animosity towards the world. They're not intended to create animosity towards Israel. They are intended to help us see the tragedy of the world around us. That the world around us is lost. That they are blind. Spiritual blindness means you can't see the true light, even if it's standing right there in front of you. Even if it's the, he's the one who has given you life and breath and everything, our spiritual blindness, our sinful hearts, prevents us from seeing Christ for who he is. That is what we need to know and understand about the world around us. And these verses should make our hearts heavy as we see that. We shouldn't be surprised when there's court cases to try and expunge Christianity from public places. We shouldn't be surprised by that. But you also notice there's not any court cases to try and get like Buddhism or Hinduism expunged from public life in America. You never see that because that's that's part of the, the darkness. But what you see is a concerted effort to eliminate truth, to eliminate the light, to eliminate Christ and his people. So we shouldn't be surprised by that. And... Our mission as Christians, what are we called to do? 
What do we see a couple weeks ago with John the Baptist? He was to bear witness, to bear testimony about who? About the light, about Christ. So what is it that we are called to do? We are called to do the same thing. To bear witness about Jesus, to point others in this world who desperately need to see the light to him. The only one who can give them sight. The only one who can give them life. That is what we are called to do. That is our task. That is our mission. And these verses help us to see and understand how to interpret the world around us. The world doesn't know Christ, but they need to. And we are his instruments to carry that message of salvation to them. And that's what we need to see and embrace. And these first three verses show us the tragedy of Jesus' rejection by the world and his people. And the next two verses show us the blessing of Jesus' reception by those who believe. The rejection of Jesus brought tragedy and brings tragedy. But ultimately, there are some who did receive Jesus. Look with me at verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Imagine if this this story, this narrative, just ended after verse 11. It would be pretty depressing, right? That Jesus came and he was only rejected. And he came and, and nobody received him. But rather than ending in tragedy, the story ends in grace. As God worked in the hearts and minds of people so that some would receive Jesus. That not everybody rejected the light. And as we see in verse 12, what we're going to see is that in verses 13 as well, this is the, the core message of salvation. What is the, the heart of the gospel? And in these two verses, we can pull out three smaller observations, three smaller truths about the blessing of receiving Jesus Christ. Number one, the free offer of the gospel. Verse 12 begins, but to all. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name. The gospel message is extended to all people everywhere. And those who receive Christ as the light and look upon him shall be saved, shall be forgiven, shall be, as we will see, adopted into the family of God. And if you look there at the beginning of verse 12, there's there's two statements that kind of say the same thing, right? But to all who did receive him, and who believed in his name. Well, they're, they're communicating the same idea, but why, why would, why would John say that to all who did receive him? Well, it's to make a contrast to what was just said. He just said that the world did not receive him, but who did? There were some. There were some who did receive him. And echoes of the same idea in those two statements. And what is it that we are to believe in? That we are to believe in the name of Jesus. Oftentimes, we, in our modern culture, we don't assign enough value to someone's name. Right? Shakespeare famously said, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. So Shakespeare's point is, hey, what does it matter what you call a rose? It doesn't matter what you call it, it's still going to be a rose. But in, in ancient societies, that was not the case. Someone's name was intimately connected with their personhood, their personality, their identity. And so when, when John is saying that we are called to believe in the name of Jesus, we are called to believe in all that he claims 
to be and in who he is. We are called to trust in him. And this isn't just trusting what he says, but trusting him. There's a difference. And we are called to trust in Jesus, in his name, in him as a person. That is what we are called to do to all who believe something is given. We see the free offer of the gospel. It's offered to everybody and those who receive it. And we see the glorious privilege of the gospel given to anybody who receives. This is the end of verse 12. That when we believe in the name of Jesus, something is given to us. It says he gave the right to become children of God. The idea is the right, the privilege, literally the authority to become a child of God, children of God. And that is, that is a marvelous and amazing privilege, right? That's quite a status. And it's not just a status, it's a status change. It doesn't say, uh, the, the, the right to be children of God. It says to become. That word become, as we've talked about in the past, it indicates change. It communicates change. That you were one way and now you're something different. If you become a child of God, it means that you were not that before. And some of us might be shocked to hear that not every person is a child of God. Yeah, not every person is a child of God. That's become a kind of a popular way of thinking in our world. The fatherhood of God. Everybody is therefore a, a child of God. But that's not the way that Scripture speaks of children of God. Listen to Leon Morris says says this, and he and he sums it up well. He says, while the New Testament portrays God as the Father of all, paradoxically, it does not speak of all as sons of God. God's attitude to all people is that of a father. All are his sons in the sense that he made them and that he provides for them. But people are his sons in the full sense only as they respond to what he does for them in Christ. When they receive the word, they are born again into the heavenly family. It is only in this way that they are really God's children. Not everybody is a child of God, but only those who believe. God is the father of all. But not everybody is a child of God. What we see here is that the gospel is offered to every person. And to everybody who receives it is granted this glorious, this amazing privilege to be brought in, to be adopted into the family of God, to be, uh, as we read in Galatians, uh, an heir with Christ. What an amazing, amazing privilege and blessing that we could become children of God. But we also see in these verses is that that we don't do that. That's not something we do. Uh, as children, do you, do your kids get to decide what family they want to be in? Did they choose you? No. Your children were born into your family. And what we see in verse 13 is that there is a, a sovereign initiation of the gospel. A sovereign initiation, and it's not from man. John's going to go out of his way to make that clear. Look at, look at verse 13. So the, the, the gospel is offered to all, to those who believe are given this right, this privilege to become children of God. And then he wants to explain how that comes about. Something, something called the, the new birth, regeneration. Verse 13 really explains how that adoption happens. This is who we're born. And there's going to be four statements. 
four statements that are that are given. The first three of them are negative, uh, and it's kind of like uh, if you heard the, the phrase "beating a dead horse," right? It's the idea of hey, the, the point is made clear over and over again. That's that's what what John is going to do in these first th- three statements, and then he's going to conclude it with a fourth statement. Now, the first statement that he makes says, "Who were born not of blood." And it is not human ancestry, it's not your bloodline that enables you to be a child of God. Now, why would this be of particular importance to the Jews? Because the Jews were, as a nation, prideful. We see that later on in the gospel. John chapter 8, Jesus is speaking with the Pharisees, and they're like, we're sons of Abraham. You can't talk to us that way. We have the promises. And Jesus says, actually, you're not sons of Abraham. You're sons of the devil. That's what he says to them. So when, when John says it is not of blood, it's, there's no bloodline, there's no ethnicity, there's no family heritage that you can look to to say, I have salvation because I'm a Jew or because I'm you fill in the blank. That doesn't apply to anybody. The second statement he makes, nor of the will of the flesh. Salvation does not come merely by you desiring it, you deciding it. It's not in your hands, which is also good news, because if it was in our hands, we would mess it up. Uh, we would fumble. Uh, that's what we do. We would mess up our own salvation if we could, but it's not in our hands. And the third statement, not of the will of man. Salvation is not a result of any human effort. No human effort, no human energy can bring us into right relationship with God. We can't cleanse ourselves from our sins. We can't pay for our sins. We can't force ourselves to be adopted and brought into God's family. We can't force any of that. But look at that last and final statement. Where does the new birth, where does this adoption come from? Who is it that makes us children of God? It says, but of God. If you look at the back of your uh, outline there, it kind of just did a little diagram of the text. And it, what, what's amazing is when you kind of look at the text in this way, it just suddenly jumps off. You, you begin to see all of the the similarities in the passage. You, you see the the themes and you see the, the contrasts. It's like suddenly you line up those last four statements. John is making it absolutely clear that there is no human initiation No human effort that brings about salvation, that brings about birth. Salvation comes from God. It is a gift of God. Only God can bring it about because he is the one who gives it. He is the one who brings us into his family. And what's significant is it's God who who gives that to us. On on one of his military campaigns, the emperor Napoleon uh, had dropped the reins of his horse to read uh, papers. It's kind of like, you know, now we have to put our phone down when we're driving. Uh, he had to put his reins down in order to read uh, military reports. Uh, and while he had dropped the reins of his horse, the horse, you know, nearly bucked him off. And so the horse is, is kind of going a little crazy and trying to, to get uh, Emperor Napoleon off of his back. And while that's taking place, a young corporal, a lowly soldier comes forward, catches the bridle of the emperor's horse, and calms the horse down so that Napoleon is now safe. 
And Napoleon turns to the corporal and he says, well, thank you, captain. Uh, so the, the young soldier immediately replies, well, of what company, sir? And Napoleon says, of my guards. And so this, this young, newly, I guess, uh, appointed captain in Napoleon's army immediately threw, throws aside his musket and walks into the field headquarters of the general. Immediately just walks in, tears off his corporal's stripes, and he took his place among the emperor's officers, who were all looking like, what are you doing? And that's exactly what they ask. What are you doing? And he replies that he was now a captain of the guards. And they say, by whose authority? And he says, the emperor's authority. Now the reason that worked is because of the individual who made the claim. Right? If, if this corporal is just another, with another one of the soldiers, he's like, hey, watch this. Let me walk into Napoleon's tent and pretend like I just got promoted to captain and let's see what happens. Is that going to work when he walks in and, and claims to be a captain now? No. It's not going to work because it's not true. He can't just claim it and it's going to be so. But he had assurance that, that what Napoleon said was going to be what took place. He had confidence in the, the authority and the power of the emperor. And that's what he began to do. He immediately began to act as if he was a captain. Even though he just took off the corporal stripes. I'm a captain now, so I'm going to act like a captain. This is where I need to be. This is who I need to be with. And if we have received Christ, if we have believed in his name, then we need to be certain that he has made us a child of God. And and not based upon how we feel, Sometimes we don't feel like children of God, but uh, our our status isn't based upon our feelings. It's based upon what? What God has said. The orders that he has given. And if we have been adopted into the family of God, then our adoption is factual and absolutely secure because God says it is secure. So then what's the implications of that? Then we need to live as children of God, children of light. That's what we are now called to be and what we are called to do. That is the, that's what we need to walk away from this morning. We see, we see that the tragedy of the world around us, hardening their heart, being blind to the true light who is in the world, not responding to, to the one who is even there among them as he came to his own. The world has tragically rejected and failed to recognize Christ. But at the same time, that, that impacts how we view the world and then our adoption as children of God. That changes the way that we view ourselves. That's where we are now to get our identity, how we should view ourselves and think of ourselves. It's a fundamental change to who we are, and so our thinking has to change also. And if we have placed our faith in Christ, we are now a part of his family. We are no longer spiritual orphans. We are no longer in poverty, wandering, wandering about life in darkness. But Christ, the true light, has shined into our lives, brought us into his family. We are now children of God. And some of you here today might be feeling like you're still a spiritual orphan. 
You might be feeling as if, hey, I want to be a part of God's family. How do I do that? Well, exactly what we see here. By looking to Christ, trusting in Him, believing in His name. That is what we are called to do. And we can rest assured if we do that, that we will be children of God. That He is the one who does that. And and what faith looks like. Faith is, is us stopping to rely upon us and beginning to rely completely upon Jesus. We're no longer relying upon ourselves, our own efforts, our own merits, our own achievements. Say Those are worthless in the eyes of God. But I'm going to rely completely and solely upon Christ. What's interesting in, in the book of John is this theme of belief. We're introduced to it for the first time here in this passage, but it's, it's going to occur a lot. Faith is a, is a common theme in the New Testament. Interestingly enough, by providential coincidence, uh, the noun believe and the verb believe each occur 243 times in the New Testament. All right, so there's a noun and a verb. And the verb to believe occurs 90 sometimes in John's gospel. He talks about it a lot, 90 times in 21 chapters. What's interesting is that John not one time in this gospel uses the noun for faith, for belief. See, to to the apostle John, believe is an action. It's something that we are called not to, to do once, but to do continually. We are to be continually believing, continually looking to Jesus in faith. And we need to develop that mindset. Not, I, I've believed in Jesus in the past, or yeah, I have faith. No, we are, we are called to believe in Jesus continually, without ceasing, without stopping. And our sense must be, as one pastor says, the sense must be that the believer throws himself upon his Lord in loving, self-abandoning faith and trust. And what we see here in this passage is that if we do that, if we look to Christ in faith, he will save us. If we, if we come to him acknowledging our sin, the light has shined into our life and we begin, uh, by, the, by the purity and the holiness of Christ, we begin to say, wow, Jesus, I fall far short of what you are calling me to do and to be. And I am a sinner and I can't save myself, Lord. The only thing I can do is come fall down before you. Ask for grace. Ask for mercy. That is what we are called to do. Each and every person, whether you have been walking with Jesus for 50 years or you've never placed your faith in him before, the message is the same. Look to Christ in faith. Look to Christ continually, believing in him, casting yourself upon him. See, the Gospel of John calls, the Gospel of John calls us not to be static, but it calls us to action. To be men and women of faith, people of faith, who are willing to go out and be messengers of Christ, testifying about who He is and what He has done to a world who has tragically rejected Him and desperately needs to hear about Him. Can we do that this week? Can we go and testify about Christ who has brought us into His family, made us children of God, 
and others need to hear about him. Let's pray. Gracious Father, Abba Father, God, we are so thankful that you have given us the privilege, the right, the blessing to become your children. Lord, that is not a a privilege or a blessing that we have earned. It is not something that we deserve. It is only by your grace, your mercy. And for that, we thank you. We praise you. And God, we also thank you for sending your son. We thank you that he came into the world. And that he has shined his light to all mankind. That he has revealed himself. And Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts that we would respond rightly to the light that Jesus shines into our life. As we see our sin, as we see our rebellion against you, as we see our our brokenness and our desperate need for you, Lord, I pray that we would respond in faith that we would trust in the name, in the power, in the person of Jesus. That we would receive him as our Lord, as our Savior. And that we would then begin to walk according to our new identity, according to our new role as children of God. Lord, may this not just be something that we know intellectually, but may it be something that we begin to treasure in our hearts because it is a lovely and glorious truth that you have brought us into your family. Lord, what a blessing. May we remember that and may we begin to live according to our new identity in Christ. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the true light, our Savior. Amen.